Hi, I'm George Tekmachov uh, here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson. That was a long pause. Yeah. We're trying, we're trying a different uh, method today for the podcast, so it may sound a little different. We will work on the technical side of that, but um, suffice it to say that we have been banished, and as a result, we find ourselves using Zoom. <laughs> yeah, we're on Zoom now. Yeah, we won't. Uh, we won't get into the whole reasons, but there's uh, there's some stuff to discuss, so we'll just deal with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll deal with it. Yeah, one way or another. So, how was your week? Um, it was very fast week. Uh, you know, yeah, just another impression. another. Yeah, I was still thinking today was like. Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, things yeah, just, yeah. I got too much going on, too much going yeah. on right now. Well, that's a good problem to have kind of uh, in times like these. I guess, I guess. Yeah. You know, I mean, considering everything, yeah. but, uh, uh, you, uh, put the way, put away the motorcycles. No, no. In fact, yesterday I got a new set of tires on the VFR. So, um, you know, I will not put away the motorcycles as long as there is no ice on the roads. What, now, with, uh, that, with that said, uh, I do wait tires. until it warms up. I got some Dunlop Road Smart 4s, which is their latest sport touring tire. The VFR being a sport touring bike, maybe a little more sport than touring. But uh, they're, they're Road Smart 4s, and they're made in Japan, and they're quite sticky. So even in cold weather, they're, they're reasonably sticky. Not that I'm planning to put a knee down anytime soon. Right. That's I'll the be, same be, tire I would have gotten as well. Yeah, well, I'm going to go around for about four months with two-inch chicken strips on the back tire because, uh, you know, you're just not going to get that much lean angle in this in this temperature. Of course not. The lean angle is going to be bad right now. Well, you don't want too much of it, that's all. And, and canyons are closed for the most part. There's either ice or snow up in the canyons. So any riding I do will be basically to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> good call. Yeah, well, you know, it's all good. It's better than not riding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't argue with that. I just it's, wait for the temperature uh, to get get above forty. It used to be I, I didn't care what the temperature was, but I'm 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 I think I'm getting soft in my uh, in my uh, dotage, and I think that uh, I don't enjoy it as much when it's below forty these days. Well, it's been it's been darn cold too. Um, yeah, but dry. ten degrees at my house last night. Wow! Wow! Yeah! Yeah! Wow. Wow, so, that is really cold. Yeah, of course you I'm live in the kind of bottom of a valley, so the cool air tends to kind of pool there, doesn't it? I don't know. Comes, comes out of the mountains and pools down there in Grantsville, or you know who's an actual meteorologist? No, I don't. Matt Matt Requa from the USA Recurve team. Oh yeah, I know Matt. Yeah, he's, he's a, a meteorologist. meteorologist. I had no idea. Yeah. So, yes, so that's if what anybody can play for. the wind, you would think Matt would be the, the wind master. He should be able to read it. Yeah, he should be able to know exactly what's happening. You'd expect. Now, last time we, uh, last time we talked, you were planning on getting back into your training cycle pretty soon. So how's that coming along? Good. I've almost started. You've almost started. All right. Well, goodness knows you don't want to <laughs> shoot too much. The history, the, yeah, the history uh, of the big cat has been success with very little practice. So, 
Well, just, uh, you know, it's become apparent. Everything has just continued to get canceled and it's become apparent that we probably shouldn't be doing any indoor archery this year. So I'm going to get some practice going. I think Linda signed me up for the uh, online world. The world archery thing. Yeah, there's a couple thousand people participating in that. Yeah, so I've got to, uh, I've got to, I've got to be prepared. Yeah. The next podcast will actually have an indoor archery focus. We're going to be talking to Tom Dillon on the next podcast, along with Bruce Cull, in order to uh, get the lowdown on Vegas, get the lowdown from Tom on this big world archery indoor series, and try to determine once we know what's happening with Vegas what the plan will be on WA's side. Because as you know, the final for that event is supposed to be uh, everybody gets together, everybody gets to be in a physical venue and shoot that final. And uh, so what's up in the air as we speak on the 4th of December today is the question of whether Vegas will be available to us or indeed even whether Neem will be happening and we'll be talking to Olivier about that in the next uh, few weeks. But uh, yeah. yeah, things haven't improved as quickly as we'd hoped. That's for sure. No, I, I mean, just personally, you know, I have suggested that we move Vegas to the summer months. Yeah. And our last podcast. Outdoor, outdoor season norms. Let's just do the best events. So I call it archery that. season rather than call it a indoor or outdoor season. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't care, you know, or, or do Vegas, uh, twice, you know, do it, do it late 2021 and then go back to normal time frame in 2022. Yeah. That's entirely possible as well. Although I don't know how that would work out for people's budgets. I have a feeling that there will be enough people to make something like that worthwhile. You know, the possibility exists. Anyway. I don't know the, I just, it doesn't seem that it's uh, viable to have anything, you know, in the coming months. So let's well, just figure out I, something I'm, else. I'm looking at it pragmatically. You know, I, I think you have a point and you know, it's understandable that um, today um, the Tokyo 2020, maybe they should call it Tokyo 2020 in 21, but that's probably a lot of words. Um, they issued their, their preliminary guidelines for their plan to have people come in and, you know, basically be isolated for, and still be able to work out for athletes. For example, there's going to be a two week quarantine basically for any incoming okay. athletes for the games. I and, and what they're, they'd all have to have been vaccinated. Well, presuming that that's even available and viable by that point. Right. I mean, that's, that's still kind of up in the air as we speak right now. But they didn't I say guess, that. They, they, they didn't call for <laughs> vaccination, but they did call for a quarantine on incoming people. And then they're having a plan to set up a way for them to continue to train while they're quarantined, you know, so that they're not going to be just sitting in a hotel room for two weeks before they try to go do a hundred meter dash or whatever. So right. it'll yeah. be it'll be interesting. They're developing that stuff, but basically it's all still up in the air till April. It's going to be a completely different landscape by then, presumably. Yeah. Who, who knows what it'll look like, you know, yeah. come yeah. spring and all that good stuff. So, yeah, let's hope that, you know, I mean, we've, we've certainly been sustained by some hope that has not necessarily been uh, met with 
positive outcomes on all of this stuff so far. So, I mean, honestly, by now we should have been back from Kings of Archery and been ready for, I mean, you'd be getting ready for uh, Idaho indoor and some other stuff going on. Right. But that's kind of falling out in terms of what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's, that's okay. You know, I, uh, I understand it. I wouldn't no, uh, with just with the level of uh, amount of people in the hospital, it's hard to argue against yeah. it. So, yeah. Yeah. But there are those who do, they still think that this is a, you know, no big deal. It's just whatever, but it's like, man, we really packing it full with, <laughs> Back in the hospitals for people. Yeah, and I, I know that you've got some people close to you that that uh, had firsthand knowledge of the situation. So, you know, uh, thankfully they're better. No, that's me. Well, that's right. I forgot. That's that is you. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, because I, of I, don't uh, know. I, I didn't want to necessarily mention that it was you personally, but yeah, because of HIPAA laws. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to violate your HIPAA. Uh, you know, your your HIPAA rights and and say that the big cat is a survivor of the vid <laughs> linda and i yeah linda and i have you been watching kevin hart calling it the vid <laughs> yeah. so so do you want to talk about it at all i mean you know you're you're the closest uh, friend i have who's who's encountered it so far yeah so i got it about a month ago and uh it really sucked so you know, that's about it. That's about it. I mean, not recommended. Uh, I take it. No, one out of five stars. Do not recommend. You know, there was, I had every symptom on the list basically. So it was, uh, it was really strange. And so thankfully, my you... oxygen levels stayed high, but my lungs were greatly affected. You know, even today, I'm like, this is literally close to 30 days since I uh, initially had symptoms. And even today, just talking to you here, I can tell that I'm going to be short of breath. So it really jacked up my lungs. Um, Linda didn't seem to get that as bad. She had every symptom and kind of got rid of them faster than I did. So I don't know, you know, what the deal is there. Maybe she just got like a a uh, a half a half shot of it <laughs> i got the full shot who knows but yeah it really sucked and you know knowing some other people who've had it some similar type of uh stuff from them and you know the smell and taste thing is weird i just got my smell back the other day i mean i have a puppy who's not exactly you know the most uh how do I see? He's not, he doesn't have the best musk, right? He's a little bit pungent and I can't smell him yet. So I, I can just now smell my shampoo when I'm showering in the morning. So what about food? Were you able to smell food? Uh, no, no, there was like 10 days, nine, 10 days where I couldn't taste anything. And then the smell was gone for a long time. And then uh, as my taste started to come back, everything still smell or still when I would, when I would, uh, bite into something initially it would taste like a really bad blue cheese or like old bread or what I'd imagine like gross feet, you know, kind of had that weird taste to begin. And then it was normal, but that was after like 10 days, you know? So it didn't just cut off your taste sense. It affected your perception of taste. 
Yeah. Yeah. So assuming whatever back, you're reading was not actually spoiled. Right. Yeah. Right. But that, you know, that wasn't, I wasn't as concerned about that. Obviously you want your taste to come back. You don't want to live your life without it. But you know, when I'm sitting there in my room, like in my, in the guest room and like, this is probably day seven or so. And I'm just coughing and coughing and coughing. And it's like, man, this is, I get how this puts people in the hospital. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was never a denier. I always tried to be safe and, and uh, treat it with seriousness. So I don't know where I got it, but uh, have some theories, but yeah. Yeah. A lot of people who think it's a hoax and they're going to, go through this whole thing and never get it. And they'll still think it's a hoax later on in life. And I can confirm it is not. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better and I'm sorry that you're still feeling some effects from it, but um, hopefully you'll continue on this positive trajectory. And of course you're, you're back at work. So you're, you know, you tested negative and maybe you got yourself some good antibodies. Let's hope from that. Yeah, and I'm willing to sell those on the black market if anybody's in the market. Bigcatblood.com. That's the, uh, <laughs> the URL. No, it's not. Probably don't um, go there. We don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. You know, that's always a dangerous proposition because whatever you can think of, somebody has probably registered. Yeah, it probably has something inappropriate in it. So Yeah, so how about we just <laughs> – Maybe I'll edit that out. I don't know. Uh, it's up to them. Yeah, fair enough. So, hey, we uh, earlier this week, we mentioned to our Facebook followers on Easton Target Archery Facebook that we were going to be doing a podcast, and we got a slew of questions from the listeners. What do you say we dive in? Yeah, it's actually good stuff. Um, so if you're one of the listeners it. who normally bails out, this is it's probably worth sticking around for this i don't know what happened but all of a sudden people started commenting on our facebook which is like a dead zone normally yeah so. yeah for some reason we got a huge uh, relatively um response <laughs> to that so it's all relative of course <laughs> you know it's not like joe rogan put up an instagram and got sixteen thousand likes you know but <laughs> right but it worked so um do you want to start with anything in particular um no we have a, whatever a real schmuggers board here so well let's yeah, let's knock out the deal let, let's knock the the big dog out of the room to start with and that's acc you know we knew that this was going to be something people were going to talk about um clint did a great job as did you in our shameless product plug podcast uh which i, I wish i'd thought of calling it that when we first did it <laughs> but that uh that product podcast that explained the 2021 product line, I thought Clint did a really good job, but clearly people don't always understand what we're, you know, what, what the plan was there. And I think some people do get it uh, like Dar Daniel Coe, who's, you know, he understands pro comp is basically the new ACC. Um, but Daniel is saying that the great in his mind, the great thing about ACC was that you could buy them in singles. I, I really, don't think that that was a great thing. Uh, that was archery dealers individually, but um, Easton's always had a policy of selling these things in dozens because we do a very, very tight factory spec on the weight. 
Yeah. So, and I responded to that, you know, and yeah, there, there's always, whenever you discontinue a product, there's always going to be some people upset about it. But in reality, we didn't discontinue the product. The market did, right? So it's a very complex product for us to manufacture from a planning standpoint because the yeah. ACC is not just one arrow. It's it's like what 15 spines. Yeah. And within those 15 spines there's there's random there's multiple core tube sizes. There's different carbons used. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but this is for No, the but some folks might want to understand this and Yeah, from a from a manufacturing standpoint, it's very hard to uh, go and build those unless you're building meaningful quantities. And as the market has changed from an ACC type arrow being, you know, ideal to now it's shifted and the ACC kind of finds itself in the middle in no man's land. It's not great for outdoor in most spine sizes and it's not an indoor arrow. It's not a 3d arrow. It's too heavy for that. It really doesn't live anywhere other than kind of a decathlon of arrows or decathlete of arrows rather. And unfortunately, those those just don't sell that well. So, from for a slew of business reasons, it was time to to be discontinued. If, if the market was still buying it like crazy, like it was, you know, the '90s, we wouldn't have discontinued it. That would be a bad business decision. But well, sure. Like I said, there's there's just so many reasons it was time for it to go, and it was time for it to go, probably years ago. Well, 30 years ago when the ACC came out, it was a revolutionary arrow, but things have moved on and Easton led that way with creating four millimeter internal diameter shafts that, that basically take the same family of components as opposed to the seven different component choices for ACCs. And, um, you know, the, the whole thing is, is just, you know, not that, uh, you know, not that uh, viable and, you know, as we talked about in our podcast previously, basically ACC was its own separate arrow company with very few customers. And and that made it very difficult, <laughs> I think, to, well, I mean, really, if you look at it that way, you know, I mean, that's yeah. the effort that it took. You know, it took basically an entire company effort to make those 17 sizes and 13 core tubes. And, you know, I mean, it, it just wasn't a viable thing. So, yeah, um, you know, Daniel... Involved and Daniel's concern, though, is a valid concern, and his concern is a lot of the fields where he lives require people to use a detectable arrow, and, and, and in particular, an aluminum carbon arrow, because it's detectable if it gets stuck in the ground if you're shooting on a soccer pitch, you know, a football pitch. And um, so they need to account for every one of those arrows. And carbon arrows are banned outdoors at a lot of these clubs in the UK, for example. And there's a few other countries that have similar requirements. And so the thing that you need to understand is that the pro comp is better in every way than an ACC and really takes care of what's needed for people who need that level of arrow and aluminum arrows yeah. for people who don't want to make they, that investment. Aluminum arrows are still a perfectly viable alternative. Right. Yeah. That's the thing is they say, well, the pro comp's more expensive. Well, yeah, it, it is. It's a lot better arrow too. Um, and you know, the rest of the world, we, we shoot on multi-use fields as well, you know, at, uh, Buckeye, one of the Buckeye in Ohio, one of the largest, 
soccer fields that I've ever seen. And they play soccer all year there, I guess. And, uh, you know, it was a requirement. We find all lost arrows as well. And we manage. So I don't know, maybe they need to examine that rule or have, uh, you know, metal detectors, things of that nature out there. Well, I will say that we've having, having, uh, having worked the London Olympics, the, the UK is very much all about, um, you know, their safety and health regulations are very, very um, stringent and uh, closely adhered to. And I'm, I'm thinking that there's a factor there that, that affects this relative to, say, Buckeye out in Ohio. But for sure, um, ProComp is the way to go. And uh, that is the way forward. And it's a better arrow all around. It's, it's going to be tougher in those target butts that, uh, that are still, unfortunately, you know, the 16th century target butts that are often used. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then the other, the other factor in there is there's still ACCs on the market. They didn't disappear. So, well, that's a good point. You know, there's probably a good nine months to a year pipeline of ACC out there. And um, I would expect more. Yeah possibly more. So anyway, Daniel, I hope that that helps answer that question. Uh, Jacob Bensuld has an interesting question. Jacob is asking, uh, Steve, how big is the difference in wind drift between a uh, 125 diameter arrow like the Pro Tour and a 167 arrow, that would be a four millimeter arrow, like the Pro Comp? So let's say they're both 29 inch arrows and they both have 120 grain points and everything else is the same, same total weight shot out of the same boat. Uh, how big of a difference does the OD make on a windy day? I'm going to, I'm going to ignore the same total weight comment that Jacob makes just for the sake of the um, argument here and uh, ask you what you think. So I actually shot pro comp threads and XN 325s at errors one year in practice and Felt like I had a pretty good, at least real world experience with, with what they are. Now, someone could go through and, you know, do the math and the ballistics and probably say, here's exactly what with you know, per hour crosswind at yada, yada, element in this temperature and blah, blah, blah. So I don't have that all I put on paper and my best judgment, which judgment we're using a lot in the the feet and I were judging the wind. Both those arrows, I think they were within 15 grains of each other. They each had 120 grain point, um, same flash, same knock, the whole shebang. And they would, they would stack on top of each other if I was shooting no wind. So they'd stack and, on top of each uh, other yeah, dry. So, uh, that is, you know, with, with uh, no yeah. windy condition. Yeah, same point of impact. And then got to a pretty consistent wind and I don't know how fast it was going. I would guess probably eight to 10 miles. And I was, I remember I was holding off with the X tens. I think I was holding off like 10 line after something like that. And they'd hit right in the middle. And with the pro on my left, just off the 10 ring to the right. So they were, a full scoring ring difference, effectively. That's kind of how I look at them. They're about yeah. a scoring ring difference in, in real-world wind drift performance. 
So I actually do have the figures and they agree with your empirical findings. It's about a one ring difference uh, in outdoor conditions. And um, sometimes that can be important if you, if you, you know, are willing to step up to the pro tour, you know, you might, you might get that extra couple points. It, you will. And here's why, because you, Inflation just like I was in. Okay, now I could have aimed, aim could have been, if I was perfect holding and executing shots and all that, my, my strategy would have been just to side in to where a shot with no wind between the X and the 10 line to the left. Then anything in the wind would land middle or out the 10 ring right. You know, so that'd be the way to do it. Now yeah. with, so then I'm covered, wind or no wind, I should still find the 10 ring. Um, with Procom, I have to I have to go further. So now I have to go at least to the outside edge of the 10 ring to the left. And then that's still going to spread me to, or over to the, uh, the 10 ring and into the 9 ring, just depending on how it gets, uh, how much wind I actually shot it at that very moment. That's, that's what we're looking for. There's a variability, obviously, in the wind at all times. So you can't predict what it's, what's going to happen. And there's so many times you're shooting in the wind and you go out and fire an arrow and you go, man, I, I felt the wind, I held it left, I fired it, and it hit dead behind the pin in the nine ring left or whatever. you know. And then there's times where you go, man, it didn't feel that windy. I held it middle, fired it, and it blew way out the right. And this happens to everybody. And you'll see you'll see a lot of guys have the same miss, say, the first arrow of the end. So they're all on the same pace. They all get up. They feel the same thing. They fire an arrow, and they all miss out the right. And you go, huh, I guess we, we missed on that one. You know, we didn't, we didn't get the wind right there. So things like that happen. It's like just being able to minimize the drift is is key then your your uh, fudge factor you know gets a bump absolutely so hopefully that's uh that's a good answer for you i think that uh that that really sums it up you're talking about a ring jacob thank you for your question yeah our next question comes from the land down under and our good friend marcus anir at uh, urban archery in australia uh marcus is asking should WA drop equipment failures? They cause major delays, and surely maintaining your gear is part of performance. And then our, our good friend, Dr. James Park, piped in and said, it's an interesting point. In motor racing, the race doesn't stop if you have a car problem. <laughs> most, sports, most sports, you simply have to deal with it. Yeah, They're right. I mean, there's certainly That's what some... I was going to say. You know, if you're running a race and your shoe comes untied, you should have double-knotted your shoe, right? They don't stop the race, so... Um, my personal opinion, yeah, you should get rid of equipment failures and because guys use them too. People use them to their advantage on a windy day. They go, oh, I have an equipment failure. And they let that, yeah, they let that tornado go by and then they just hope conditions are going to be better. And I've oh, seen oh. it from top level archers. They do it to get out of a clock situation. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, we've all seen that. And I think I'd get rid of that, equipment uh, failures and equipment inspection too. screw that. Well, I agree with that as well. And that's, you know, you remember the conversation we had about judging a couple podcasts ago, the same factor comes into play. If, uh, 
if there's an issue with a piece of equipment, let the archers police it. And then if they bring it up to the judge and they're willing to pay the, the fee, uh, you know, the protest fee or whatever, uh, let that be the, the deciding factor. But yeah. don't have two or three or four hours of people lining up to, to get equipment inspected by a judge. You know, I, I think that it's just unnecessary in this day and age. Yeah. If somebody else is doing something, shooters will see it. There's, there's this, a few places where equipment inspection would make sense, something like field archery specifically. Oh, yeah, for um, sure, because but, you know, if, if somebody can put marks on a binocular or something like that to cheat, they'll try to. But, yeah. but you know, in general terms, for target archery, uh, equipment, fa- equipment failure and equipment inspection are both maybe out of date, no longer need to be part of the – because here's the thing. The poundage rule. The poundage rule? Yeah, because you don't you don't need it. I mean, I don't care if someone's shooting sixty two pounds. They're, that's up to them. You know, shoot what works well for you. Um, but we're also scared of being, you know, at fifty nine pounds because you get to a tournament and their scale stinks, which all the scales stink. There's not a good scale in the world that is usable by judges that they can afford to buy. So we get to these tournaments, you're like, man, I hope the scale doesn't suck. I'm at 58 and a half pounds. It could be off two pounds. And then I'm having to deal with that. And, you know, so, so just get rid of that rule. And if you're worried about it, besides the rule is dumb. If Peter Elzinga shoots 70 pounds and I shoot 60 pounds, I'm still going to have more speed than him. So put a speed limit in. Right. And then, if that's what you're hoping to do, just put a speed limit in. And then uh, the other side of it is you could just do uh, random equipment inspections, same way we do random drug testing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that would uh, both save time and trouble for a lot of folks. Okay. Yeah. It's just, so uh, it's dumb. Yeah. No. So Marcus and James, thanks for those uh, questions and comments. Um. This is an interesting question, particularly for you, Steve, with your other hat as your as your pro staff coordinator for Easton. Tommy Swart is asking, how will companies be looking at sponsoring archers in the virtual arena that we find ourselves in? Um, and the second part of his question we'll get to. But uh, first off, uh, different companies are handling this sort of thing differently, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's... Uh... One thing people need to realize always is that we don't sponsor people for fun. It's to help us sell more product. We're running a business, right? So if, and there's not like a certain way of, Oh, this is how we do sponsorship and this is what it is. And you know, it's uh, basically I have a budget to work with and I'm supposed to help us maximize our company exposure to help maximize sales. That's my job. Um, and that's the, the, the job of the pro staff as well. So I suppose if you're a guy who doesn't have, a, you know, a very favorable presence with shooters or online presence, then it's a, your value is decreased, right? Because those who are online are the ones you're seeing right now. Yeah, that's um, the current, uh, that's the current situation. If, if, if you haven't worked as a sponsored shooter, to shift your message to where the audience is right now, your value to your sponsor is not what it could be. 
Certainly. So there's certain, there's definitely different levels of people, you know, there's people we sponsor who are never going to win an event, but they're very good for the company. They're a good ambassador for the company and for the sport too. Uh, and then there's people who aren't that great as salespeople, but they win a lot. Right. So yeah, there's the, 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 two levels, the horses yeah. on the podium too. So now I think it's important by the way to, to really make one point, you know, a lot of folks, uh, you see this a lot on, on uh, forums. People are like, well, so-and-so uses the X10, but they get them for free. There are actually very, it's a handful of people who are actually sponsored by Easton. It's not a big group of people. Yeah, the vast majority, well, I don't need to, I don't have to go into detail about it, but yeah, it's not nearly what people think. There's a lot of different programs out there through shops and, and uh, distributors and through national teams and things of that nature where, you know, people may uh, be able to enter into some sort of a, a partnership, a co-op partnership through those. Um, but my direct factory team is pretty small, truthfully. Yeah, that was my point. It's it's just not what the perception some people have, for example, is that everybody on an Olympic field gets free X10s. Well, that's just not true. Um, you know, They might have got them for free from their uh, you know, national team who paid for them. Yeah, the national teams are buying those. Yeah. And that's something that that people you know don't understand is that you know these things are are hardly given away. They're they're expensive to make and they are expensive to buy and <laughs> Easton is not in the business of uh, giving them away. And so you know Well, I, you know George that perception um even extends here within our own walls. You know, I had a a guy who's been with the company for years and years uh who is a lead in manufacturing and his assumption of the x10 was that we we really just use it to sponsor people and i'm like dude i don't think you understand <laughs> the, the amount we give away versus the amount we sell is uh significant right significant so it, significantly smaller yes the amount we, we give away is significantly smaller than I mean, we're, we're not here for charity, right? It's a, it's a business. Yeah. Well, that was my point. That's why I brought that up. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a fictional narrative that, that some folks like to explain the success of the X10 by saying, well, it's cause Easton makes everybody shoot them or Easton gives them away to everybody. It's certainly not the case, not even close. Right. I mean, truthfully, our competitors do, plenty of giving away of product as well yeah so, yeah our competitors did such a good job at giving away so much product that they had to quit target archery recently oh yeah right i know what you mean let's look at this other question from rick and this one you're going to get the phone book for an answer on this but uh, rick is asking diet before and during a competition it, I mean, we're not running a marathon, so you don't have to have like too many considerations, truthfully. I think the important thing is just to make sure you're not going to, one, have to rush to the bathroom. Or two, I try to avoid any sort of seafood because it, uh, I think seafood contains iodine. Is that right? And it, it causes you to, it makes it harder to hold still. Really? And a lot That's of people, an interesting thing. Yeah. A lot of people, Kevin Wilkie told me that. And then a, a couple years later, 
Roger Willett told me if he has shrimp, he doesn't shoot as well. And he, he was able to determine that. He never knew why. And uh, I got to looking into it. And apparently, yeah, that's a thing. Like your, your ability to hold steady is decreased by iodine in your bloodstream. How interesting. I've never heard that before. Although, it, I mean, you know, not, not being a nutritionist or anything like that, it, it just kind of makes sense on a certain level. That's very interesting. So maybe it's not uh, true and someone can point that out, but I, I don't know. I would suppose that maybe some members of the Japanese team might counter what you're saying, but then again, maybe they've always got high iodine levels and so they're used to it. Yeah. They might just be accustomed to it. It's like people who drink uh, a lot of coffee in the morning. They need to continue to do that. Like I think Jesse Broadwater told me, he said, I drink coffee every morning. So I do it when I'm shooting too, because what my body's accustomed to you know and some people they try to if they're accustomed to it then they try to cut it out well now they have other problems to deal with so yeah that is precisely where i was headed um with my answer which is rick uh i don't change what i eat during and before and during a competition as much as i try to not overeat for one thing um, certainly pay attention to what Steve mentioned about making sure you don't eat something that might induce issues for you during the competition. Um, you know, obviously, uh, don't go to a public salad bar, <laughs> <laughs> particularly ones that don't have a sneeze guard. Yeah. But you know, if you, if you get up in the morning and your routine is to have a cup of coffee or two, um, get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee or two. Or you're going to feel different when you're out there on the line. Um, if you find yourself feeling like during the day you need to uh, work on your attention level or your focus or things of that nature, just you know maybe some light snacking on something not too sugary, just to keep your blood sugar level reasonable. You know, a lot of people I see them guzzling Gatorade at tournaments, which is full of sugar. Personally, yeah. I don't think that's a great plan. You know, um, maybe cut the Gatorade 10 to 1 with water, just a little bit for flavor. But I would absolutely be careful, particularly if you don't drink it the rest of the time, right? Uh, just be careful about those those sport drinks and those sugary drinks that are meant for, you know, literally marathon runners while they're in competition. <laughs> right. You know, you're not. Yeah, you're I, not I, I, go ahead. You see it all the time, though, don't you? Yeah. And it's like, we're not doing a physically hard event. So um, if I have a Gatorade, it's for hydration purposes and I, I get the G2 or like a Powerade Zero or whatever. It doesn't have sugar in it, but yeah. Um, but that's more to know, stay hydrated more than it is to, to give yourself more, you know, energy and electrolytes, which is what right. those things are sold for. Right. So if we're in Yankton and it's like hundred degrees and 99% humidity, I'm probably having a Gatorade, you know, well, that's a different story. Right. <laughs> I'll be fine there. Yeah. No, Cause you'll sweat it out in 15 minutes, but all right. Yeah. Back to, that's something uh, to account for as well as the weather. Back to a couple shooting questions here. Uh, Damien Latore is asking, how does one ease the tension in their shot when in a highly stressful situation? Uh, for example, Damien finds it to be very stressful to be in his basement by himself trying to get past a 299 24X. 
Yeah, Damian texted me last night and told me he had uh, in his practice round last night he shot 150 with 15 X, which he had never done before. And uh, the wheels fell off after that, did not finish so hot. So um, I think the, uh, the key is you have to be willing to do something good, right? So many people yeah. are like, oh, man, I'm about to shoot a – I'm still clean. Oh, no. And like, it's okay to be doing something good. It's okay to shoot a good score. And you shouldn't be – surprised or worried when that happens that's where you gotta have that we've talked about having that little bit of ego you know you gotta have that where you're like yeah i'm gonna shoot a good score because it is I've like me to shoot a 150 15 you know it's yes. like me to shoot a 330 that kind of thing yeah. and the beauty of of whatever you've already done is it's already been done and it doesn't it's not like playing tetris where like the game speeds up as you go and it gets harder. Like archery is still the exact same all the time. So you don't have to uh, you don't have to feel like there's pressure mounting on you just because you've already done well thus far. Exactly. But the That's problem is uh, ego is necessary for achievement, but ego is also part of the reason why we feel stress. And it's an individual thing. You'd have, to, you'd have to really know a person to give them a specific answer that would be useful. But some of the techniques, Damien, that a lot of shooters use, um, some shooters respond well to the focus on each shot rather than thinking about the score. Kind of fool yourself into forgetting about the score. Maybe have some third party keep score for you so that you're not necessarily acutely aware of where your score is as you're shooting. Um, now the problem with that is when you get yourself into a real competition, you're going to have some guy <laughs> on a PA telling you what your score is and you're not going to be able to ignore <laughs> it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was that's, about to bring that up. I want to give myself every type of, I want to put as much pressure on myself as, as possible in a practice scenario, you know? So I want to know like, Oh, okay. I need three more arrows to shoot a 30 X. You know, this is it, last end, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, then or shoot for or shoot for a beer like I used to do with Don Rabska, or you know, put something on it so that it has some meaning. That's you know, I used to go to uh Tim Gillingham's house once in a while, and um he and I and Henry Bass would kind of compete with each other. And the the thing Tim always said was and this is comes from Lee Trevino, the golfer said, you know, you got to have enough on it that it's uncomfortable to lose. Yes. So yes. if you're, if you're wagering, you know, a couple bucks and you're like, or whatever, you know, in your situation of beer, if you're like, well, whatever, you know, not a big deal. But if you're like, what if you were like, okay, for the next week, you know, for the next week now it's like, Oh, I don't want to lose that. Right. Well, so, you know, Don's a good friend of mine, but I never wanted to lose to him. Right. So there was that added element of things, right? We were, we were good friends, but good shooting rivals. And so there was an additional layer to it than just shooting for a beer. Right. Because if I'd lose, Don would never let me hear the end of it. Yeah. There was that extra bit of that involved, which is yeah. something, right? 
Right. I mean, that's the point, though. What your your Lee Trevino quote is great. It is, you know, make it something you care about is yeah. another way to look at it. And, you know, Damien, this doesn't help you in your basement by yourself. But here's the deal. You you need to. You need to jump into that bathtub full of cold water. You need to feel that over and over again until you go, yeah, you know what? I can still do this shot in spite of how I feel. Yeah. You, know, you need to acclimate and yourself. The key is, right now for him, it's that stupid, it's that stupid 300 number. Once he shoots a 300 once, it'll be like, okay, yeah, you know. And then it's going to well, start. He's done the 150, so he can do the 300. Everybody. He's done the 150. He can do the 300. Right. But he won't believe it till he does. Once he does, the damn thing will shoot a he'll, 10. Yeah. And he can shoot one All arrow at a time. A yeah, yep. he can shoot one arrow at a time and focus on that to get him over the hump. Once he gets over that 300 hump, he'll be unstoppable. Yep. You know, and that's the thing. You know, everybody's, like I said, everybody's got a different... When I'm working with shooters, recurve shooters, uh, who have this mental block, we get them off of that focus on the on the score. We get them on something like timing. Shoot your shot with a certain timing. And the score actually comes out of that. And when they do that, and they look at their scorecard and are pleasantly surprised to see they exceeded their self-imposed limit, after that, things become a lot easier. But that's a trick. You know, it's a technique that is hard to apply to yourself when you're shooting by yourself. So the other thing is, Damien, get out there and find yourself a league that you can shoot with once things get back to a more normal situation. Because there's nothing better than shooting with other people to both change your focus on your individual score and give you the pressure you need to become more acclimated to that feeling. Yeah. I, you know, I've said in the past, I think tournament, tournament experience is worth like 10 times what a practice round is. So if you go shoot 30 arrows in a tournament, it's like shooting, you know, 300 arrows of practice, but I, I think it's even more, I think it's worth like a hundred times. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And that, that applies no matter what shooting sport you're in, I've found, you know, uh, if you're, if you're practicing by yourself against the timer shooting pistol versus man on man competition, that's a completely different situation. And the value of, of each moment in competition is much greater than the value for the mental game of each moment in practice. We do practice so that we are prepared for competition. We do practice some people because they enjoy just the process. But for those of us who want to compete, for, for people like Damien who want that 300 regularly, um, those moments in competition are invaluable. And that's why I always think, you know what? It's not too soon for you to go compete. You might, you might be last on the, on the results list. Who cares? Everybody was last on a results list sometime, probably. Right. Um, you know, you've just got to, you've got to, you've got to work your way through that stuff. It, it gives you the pressure proofing that you need to perform when it really counts. And so Damien, I would say, you know, um, get yourself into some competition and don't worry so much about the score. Shoot each arrow as well as you can. Dan. Yep. And once you shoot the first one, it'll all be downhill from there. Yep. Dan is looking for some mid range arrows to go with his mid range recurve setup 
and um, he's shooting indoors. He's hoping to work his way up to 70 meters outdoors. He's shooting up in Canada, so that'll be sometime in July. And Sorry, just kidding. Um, he'd like to have an indoor and, op- indoor and outdoor option, um, but he doesn't think that he should get, you know, skill level-wise, he doesn't think he's good enough for RX-7s on the indoor and X-10s first. Honestly, I think you guys have the answer, and that's the Avance. Yeah, the new Avance would be pretty ideal for him. And, you know, I wouldn't, if, if uh, RX-7 spines well for him and he wants to try something like that for indoors, I mean, the beauty of that is you're not investing like you are into an X-10 or something like that, you know? Yeah, that's so, the other thing, Dan. The, the, the RX-7 doesn't cost anything like what an X-10 costs. You don't need to worry about right. that. RX-7s are just a little bit more expensive than a regular X-7. Yeah, so that would be an option. But, I mean, if he just wants one arrow to do it all right now, which is absolutely fine. And the Avance is the one to get. And that should be, you know, in the next month or so, those should start hitting shelves. The second part of Dan's question is that when he's, and again, he's a recurve shooter. When he's shooting three spot versus a single spot, he's having some issues. He's busting knocks on the 40 centimeter full face on the one spot. But on the three spot, he's finding that he always has one spot he can nail and the other two are more erratic. He's questioning if this could be a mental issue or a form issue. Or is there an aiming setup process that he doesn't know about? Well, here's the thing. Um, there's a drill you can use to determine a couple things. And one of them is, are you lining up correctly um, on that target? Are you addressing the target correctly? Are you, are you making adjustments subconsciously or consciously for each one of those spots? Because at 18 meters, you, you shouldn't have to move your feet or move your hips or do anything radical to get all three spots, you know, that's, that's one thing. The second thing is, yeah, a lot of people do get a little tighter when they're shooting at a three spot. So a solution to that is shoot a three spot, one arrow at a time. And what I'm, what I'm saying is I found this exercise to work for people who have this specific issue, shoot one arrow at one spot, go down, pull that arrow, shoot, that arrow at another spot, etc., And I think you will find that you get more relaxed with the sight picture and with the situation after you've done that a few times. Yeah, there's a lot of walking involved, but shoot one arrow at a time into each spot, go around the horn. And I think you'll find yourself finding your own answer on that particular aspect of things. Any thoughts on that, Steve? Um, you know, it's just sometimes the one thing I always tell people is when you're shooting a, a three spot face, you need to find your natural alignment with your stance, you know, and don't assume it's the same at every range or even on every target at every range, because oftentimes the range lines and the actual target face are not aligned perfectly. So what I try to do just early on is find kind of my natural alignment, draw back with my eyes closed, you know, come down and settle on what I think the target would be and see if I'm pointing left or right of it and then shift my stance just a bit to accommodate that. Yep. Addressing the target, making sure that you're into your natural point of aim. And you can do that by pulling up on the target with your eyes closed and then seeing is your bow off to the left or right. That's, that's one thing that you can do to establish whether you need to make a small adjustment there. Yeah. Cause it, it could be that he's just got bad alignment from the get go, you know, not yep. a bad point of aim. I'm not gonna call it alignment. Cause that's obviously another 
term for other stuff, but his yep, natural point of, point of aim just isn't isn't there isn't there, and that's causing issues with his alignment, which is causing issues with his form and blah blah blah. Or a yep. fatigue thing. I mean, if his first first if that air target that's really good is the first one, and two and three are subsequently getting worser, then you know check your pace. Take another. It's amazing what another like two three seconds between arrows will do for you. Yep especially if you're a developing shooter with a recurve and it sounds like maybe that's the case here. So all yeah, that hopefully is hard. So <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it is. It's not called the struggle stick for nothing. Right. All right. Lindsay Koshikevsky is asking an interesting question, which we may or may not be qualified to answer, but we can certainly, that never stops us from giving our opinion. Uh, <laughs> Lindsay wants to know what are the top three to five things to consider or things that maybe are overlooked when building a range. And, and Steve, you just built a range recently. Yeah. So any thoughts? Um, I think, uh, I, I mean, for the most part, it's pretty straightforward. Right. But I think some stuff that can really make or break a range is like the wall colors around yep. it you know i've seen really yep. really good ranges that had a uh, dark ceiling like a black ceiling or black walls on top and it just really really ruined the overall lighting yeah it sucks um, up the light right so try to have a you know a white wall and white ceiling i think that's key mine doesn't have that entirely but um you know it's still yeah. half unfinished basement so but lighting that's baffled in such a way that it's not in your eyes, no matter what your height might be, right? That's one thing that is a nice thing to have in in a, in a range. Lighting that has yeah. some baffles toward the shooter so that they're not... And then lighting behind the shooter for recurve so that you get good string illumination. Yeah, that helps too. Um, you know, and I... I the, there's one... There's a couple ways to do it. I mean, if you're... Most importantly, like what you said, the lighting behind the shooter. And then if you can just get the target nice and lit up, you know, some of the best indoor World Cups that I've been to, they have a light on the floor aiming up at the target and a light hanging over the the target butt that's aiming down at it. So yeah, Neem, Neem is really often does set a up good that job. Way. Yeah. Right. Just does a good job of lighting the the uh, target butt itself up. And then you don't have to worry too much about what's happening in the middle. And in fact, that's right. As long as you've got light on the shooter and light at the target, you don't need anything in between, like the finals and neem, you know, which is a it's done for dramatic effect and it certainly gives a great compelling visual for television, but it also works just fine from the standpoint of shot execution. Um, right. Good light at the target, good light at the shooter. What's in between doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Then I would just say make sure you have space uh, behind, you know, space. I, there's a lot of ranges that we shoot here locally where when you're shooting there by yourself, just practicing, it's all fine. You, you know, you, you finish your end, you hang your bow on the rack or set it in the stand on the floor or whatever. And you go pull your arrows and come back and pick it up and shoot again. But then when you're shooting a tournament, it's very hard for people uh, to get around those racks and around all the other bows on the floor to go from the shooting line to the seating area or whatever. So, I mean, if you're building the range fresh from scratch, you'd have plenty of room behind to, to give people plenty of space to move around between. Yeah. Ends. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the, one of the most difficult 
tournaments I ever shot used to be back east. Um, there's a great club back there in in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, but you know they used to have a 25 meter round, and you'd almost smack the back wall with your elbow. It really right. left very little room to move around, and um, the best thing would be to have an additional space, both to the sides and behind the line so that people can move. But also, again, the big consideration is equipment, being able to get equipment out of the way of people and their, and their movement um, is an important thing. And then um, the other thing that's nice to have in a range from my personal point of view is reasonably good ventilation and um, reasonably good uh, temperature control so that, you know, you're comfortable. It doesn't need to be super dialed in, but you know, you don't want it to be a hundred degrees in the summertime. You don't want to be 30 degrees in the wintertime. You want to have some reasonable temperature control, uh, with some air that's, you know, moving and not stale. Yeah. And just like you, you also don't want other... that air blowing on the archers on the shooting line. Yes, exactly. Ideally those, those air vents, air ducts are coming out away from the shooting line. Yep, exactly. Um, you know, that, that's a real issue, particularly if you're uh, a contact lens wearer or something like that, that can be a, a problem. So, you know, those considerations are good. Um, some kind of consideration maybe toward um, protection behind the, behind the targets. Um, those, those green nets that people buy for stopping arrows don't stop arrows. They just don't. <laughs> they slow them down. They slow them down a bit, but they really don't stop them. You need to put up some carpeting, double layers of carpeting, something like that to, uh, to really be effective if you don't want arrows bouncing off the walls. So just uh, those are a few things to consider. Archery Hooligan wants to know, when do we get to see the big curly fro, big cat? <laughs> yeah, see, I would he's, he's referring to my hair when I was younger. Um, I would have referred to it as a mop, not a fro. But, uh, yeah, in fact, I need a haircut today, so I might go do that at lunch. Well, that sounds like a, sounds like a plan. Yeah. All right, Steve, I think that wraps up the questions, unless you have something else. No, um, I think we co covered most of them, at least. All right, so uh, I do have one more thing, and that is, um, let me just look it up. It, it touches on, I think, a good place for us to conclude. And it was the question of what happens uh, with WA and these, you know, virtual tournaments, that kind of thing. Uh, David Cousins, not to be confused with the world famous Dave Cousins, um, is, is asking, given the scores we're seeing in all these virtual tournaments at all levels from world archery to club shoots, how good do you think the next indoor-outdoor season that actually happens is going to be i don't know if that's a loaded question or not because i, I you know i yeah there have been some pretty spectacular scores coming out of uh the virtual events um and you know a lot of these were scores that were videotaped so there's no shenanigans um you know there are real world scores like the one that ojin hyuk turned in for the last pass at the uh, world indoor series that's going on um but you know it does raise the question when people are back together again, what's going to happen with the scores? Are they going to go, are they going to be at that level? Are they going to go higher? Or are they going to go lower? What do you think? Um, I think you're 
better archers who have always been your better archers are probably not shooting their best scores right now. And I think when it comes time for it to matter again, they're probably going to shoot good scores again. And then you're going to have some of your people who are uh, taking advantage of the internet and their scores are going to go back to reality. So, you know, that's, uh, that's what I think of it. That's a very pragmatic answer. And I agree. <laughs>